You're listening to Citus AMC's In Conversation. This episode features Justin Vetter, president of Securant Risk and Insurance Services, a subsidiary of Citus AMC. He's joined by Rob Chrisman, a capital markets consultant and publisher of the Chrisman Commentary, the popular daily snapshot and podcast on the mortgage industry and interest rates and by Mike Fontaine, co-president and chief operating officer of Plaza Home Mortgage, a top U.S. lender based in San Diego. Their topic, growing repurchase demand and the potential impact on lenders, as well as strategies to prevent and handle the growing risk. Thank you for joining us on In Conversation. I'm Justin Vetter. I'm joined by Rob Christman, capital markets consultant and publisher of the Christman Report, and a happy new grandfather. And Mike Fontaine of Plaza Home Mortgage, a top U.S. lender based in San Diego. Rob, give us a history here. Why are repurchase demands a growing problem? The problems came from the huge amount of volume that the industry saw in 2020 and 2021. You know, un- unprecedented was the overused term, but uh, definitely two two of the biggest years the industry's ever seen. And during that time. Of course, the pandemic caught everybody by surprise, including lenders. And we transferred from a office environment to a work from home environment almost without missing a step. It's amazing what the industry did, but we certainly experienced our share of growing pains. And as we expanded and hired and added new technology and so forth, uh, it, it was done at such a rapid pace that a lot of companies lost sight of perhaps some of the components of the loan underwriting process and so on. But, you know, building the systems and the people capacity to deal with that explosive growth in origination volume really was the spark of the problem. Right now, we are grappling with some of those underwriting errors, uh, potentially a higher rate of underwriting errors than, than we would normally see. And the the interesting thing, and I hear this quite a bit, is, well, isn't there a statute of limitations? Can't they leave us alone? Most agreements between investors and lenders have up to 36 months in order to review the loans. And so companies are still reviewing and uncovering those defects. And so it's an ongoing quality control check. Uh, sometimes months or years after loans were originated. And so we are dealing with that aftermath currently. Thank you, Rob. Mike, the landscape has obviously changed quite a bit since the global financial crisis. What concerns do lenders have and what are the biggest risks? Well, like Bob mentioned there, the investors have have really become more aggressive in pursuing the repurchase demands. And I think the one thing that people need to keep in mind is it's not even a huge error that can cause a repurchase demand. Even things that are fairly small don't matter. <laughs> to the, the investor can look at, at a loan and find a defect that is material to it. And you know, in their mind, what might be material might not be the same as whoever the, the originator's QC group is looking at it, they might not feel the same way. They may not feel like it's a major or a minor or a a big enough defect in order to cause a buyback. But if it's not manufactured to what the guides were, then it's going to be a repurchase demand. So, you know, what's happening is 
a lot of the small to mid-size independents, they originated a lot of loans during 20 and 21. And a lot of those people during that time, you know, they we grew real fast. So they weren't able to to come up quickly enough on their internal quality. And so there's manufacturing problems on it. So what's happening today, some of those loans are coming back to them and they're having to to look at a repurchase or indemnification. Uh, but the problem has been exasperated by a lot of those loans were originated more or less around the 3%, some lower, some just a little bit higher interest rate range. But today the rates are in this in the sixes, upper sixes even. And just the rate differential alone, uh, on a, if you were going to try to buy that loan back and even if it, could, if it could be fixed and resell it or sell it to an investor that buys scratching down loans, is they're still looking at it. Just a yield differential itself is causing a huge discount. And so if the rates are relatively flat, the, tip, the purchase losses, they're going to be there, but they're going to be relatively small. Today, they're very large. You're seeing, you know, 30% plus losses on on loans and and that is uh something that you know smaller IMB in particular they just don't have the balance sheet to hold that and they can't hold the loan so they're stuck selling it and those losses are are huge and the, and they result in losing you know quite a bit of ec- their equity as a result of just one or two loans so you know that's part of the the landscape we're facing with today, face today and uh I hear it all day long from people we work with that uh, they're very frustrated with uh, the lack of anybody who who bought the loan from them, giving them kind of giving them a break. Mike, haven't a lot of these loans been performing? Unlike the global financial crisis, when many loans were in default, lenders are now taking significant hits and these loans are performing, right? Yes, most of them are performing still. And that's, I think that's the biggest frustration that people have is the, the loans performing. It's just, at a low interest rate and the you know what is perceived to be the defect in there might not even be something that whoever sold the loan or originated the loan feels that it is even relevant to the to the ability to to repay and the borrower could have made their payment consistently and not missed it or been late on a, a single payment and there's still a repurchase and it's still a deep deep discount from par if you have to sell that loan into the scratch and down market. Gotcha. Shifting to you, Rob, what are some of the issues that lead to repurchase demands? What percentage of these investor demands actually end up having a lender buy back the whole loan? Yeah, I've, I've heard as, as high as 50% of uh, loan repurchase requests end up being bought back. It's a negotiation process. So it doesn't matter if the company is bigger or smaller. Exactly. Exactly. I don't, I don't think anyone's trying to push anybody to go out of business, but the fact of the matter is, as Mike alluded to, the, you know, the reason for the repurchase requests and the issues, a lot of them are, are income-related issues, debt-to-income ratios, for example, appraisal issues, you know, missing documentation employment verification, things that tend to get swept under the carpet when you're drinking from a fire hose, as the industry was a few years back. Uh, You have undisclosed liabilities. Yes, a great example would be a borrower decides to buy a new car, purchased it the day before closing, 
that changes his whole profile as a borrower. His debt to income goes up, and that's really not the lender's fault, but they pay the price regardless. Right. Yeah, it's not per se the lender's fault, but you know, it's a problem nonetheless. And many of the loans are making their payments, but it is a financial hit. And so when you're dealing with one out of every two loans, arguably, that are being asked to be repurchased, having to be repurchased, Mike's right. It's a real hit to the bottom line of uh, of any lender, and especially a lender which, you know, may, maybe they're worth five or ten million dollars, and if when you're asked to buy back three, four, five loans that you did during that time period, or maybe more, and you're losing thirty points on each loan because you're selling a three percent loan at seventy cents on the dollar, it can be a huge hit. So, but the issues, like I said, the issues tend to spring from trying to do a lot of volume in a hurry because nobody wanted to uh, turn a loan away because their operations staff wasn't keeping up. Instead, companies were trying to hire op staff as quickly as they could. And, uh, you know, arguably some shortcuts were taken. This environment is impacting the landscape for merger and acquisitions. Mike, what are your thoughts on M&A activity as it relates to this current approach environment? Well, it depends on how the transaction is handled. So if it's a stock sale, the buyer is going to be very cautious about overpaying. And if they think there's more repurchases out there, they're going to try to discount the value of the stock that they've purchased because they're taking that on. If it's an asset sale, then the company that's selling those assets is going to still be responsible for the repurchases. And they're going to need to have some kind of a holdback in there inside their their kind of, I'll call it a corporate shell at that point, to make sure that they're able to to live up to the demands there. And again, it's an unknown. It's almost in a it's tougher spot for them at that point because they don't even really have a operating entity to deal with these repurchases because all their employees are now gone and and it makes it even tougher to go through there. And so I think it depends on on how how the entity is structured. Is the seller continuing on and it's an earnout type situation or something? And that would just go against the earnouts. But it is a big unknown. And in this market, I think uh, buyers have the advantage on trying to to use that to discount uh, value potentially. Uh, so that's, I think it's important that, that people understand what their risk is and be realistic on their projections. Uh, Rob, you want to comment any further on that? Sure. I, I agree 100%, Mike, with what you said. The, of course, the buyer wants to postpone any payouts you know, for, for years. And the seller, of course, wants to get paid up front and be done with it. And somewhere they, they meet. But it is a it's always been a problem and the the potential for buybacks has increased. And so the wariness of buyers has increased as well. So the interesting thing is that I've seen the M&A activity be based on volume where interestingly enough, if a given lender has certain tickets, you know, to the agencies, you know, Ginnie Mae, seller service, so on then the less volume that they did during that time period, buyers prefer that because there's less 
possibility of buybacks. It's an interesting twist on on things because normally you think, oh, the buyer wants a company that's doing you know hundreds of millions every month. When in actuality, some of the buyers out there just want agency tickets and therefore would have preferred if companies are doing or did do less volume during that time period. Another M&A strategy I've seen recently is related to different state licenses. For example, a company will buy a small firm that has a New York license or California license. Exactly. So it's definitely a discussion. It's become more complicated with the buyback that the industry you're seeing now. And so it's a, uh, you know, it's certainly a discussion between sellers and buyers. Yes, I agree. So Mike, Plaza has implemented the certified loan program. Can you give us some color on the program? How does it work? How does it benefit your lenders, et cetera? Sure. So we started this program many years ago, uh, and we wanted to take a different approach to the market as an aggregator. And we decided that we would try to give our clients an opportunity to have some repurchase certainty by providing the certified loan program, which offers both manufacturing defect as well as fraud insurance to to the seller, the, the loan or the clients of ours, that they don't have that, that same tail risk that we've just been describing for the last few minutes here uh, at such a large amount. So what we did is we do a, a somewhat of a limited review on the loans. Um, we're not fully underwriting the loans again or anything like that, but we are looking at the loans before we purchase them. And then we back that with an insurance product through Securant, the loan defect insurance on it. And with that, the client of ours has a, a small deductible plus the amount over par that we paid the loan as their risk on it. So instead of the 30% that we've been describing as, you know, kind of is roughly where the scratch and dent losses are today. If somebody sold us a loan during that time frame and it came back and we had to repurchase it or issue a repurchase demand to them, they would be faced with their small deductible, which is typically $10,000 and a, a an amount over par. So if we paid 102 for a $300,000 loan, they're going to be paying $10,000 plus $6,000 on top of it uh, uh, total for that sort of exposure on that. So it really limits the seller's risk of the repurchase tail. And, and the other thing it does too is, is since we do some looking at the loans right before we purchase them, they're also getting some instant feedback on their manufacturing quality at really right after the time they originate the loan. Because one of the problems we run into with these the repurchase demands that we've been describing here is a lot of this stuff's coming up a year or two, even three years later. And if the part of the problem was just a missing page out of a, of a out of a document, or you know, if they're supposed to have three months worth of bank statements and there's only two in the file, it's a lot easier to get that kind of stuff right after closing or right near closing. But it's a lot harder to go back to that consumer uh, borrower two, three years later, or, or even in some cases, we've seen loans come back, you know, five, eight, nine years later, real hard to go back to them and find that document. So we're able to provide some instant feedback to, so they can kind of cross-check their manufacturing quality right away with as a, you know, it's not a full QC, but it is some limited look at it there. Owners of the IMBs in particular find the program very valuable. 
to look at protecting their net worth, minimize their requirement for loss reserves, give them some peace of mind. And we've been describing an environment where rates rose quite a bit over the last 12 to 16 months. But even in, in a relatively flat rate environment, you know, scratch net losses still are are there and there and you're you're not getting par for loans or or over par for sure. So it uh it does protect them uh long term. Sounds like a fantastic uh, program, Mike. I'm kidding. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's been great. Uh and, and, yeah. and you know, obviously we've been working with you on it for a long time and and uh it's been a it's been a good program. People always ask me, well do you ever get paid on it? You know, that's the that's the kind of the, the, the age old question. And then yes, we unfortunately we have had to make claims and they have come through for us. I'm glad they came through for you. Good to hear. Rob, what is your view on a program like this in today's environment? Is it helpful? Will be lenders interested? What are your thoughts? I would say that the use of it can only increase, right? The fact of the matter is you have a lot of independent banks, credit unions or whoever, but independent mortgage banks certainly who want to be protected and do so in a cost-effective manner and with a company that performs uh, on the contract. And so you have a situation where if you can protect your company, you're going to do whatever it takes. So I, I see a great amount of value in a program like this. Great. Let's shift to the old topic of mortgage fraud. Mortgage fraud has been around for years. It's ran, ran rampant during the financial crisis. And now it's back again. For example, I saw bankstatements.com recently where you could actually go on and create your own bank statements. And they look real. It's amazing. What are you guys seeing and hearing out there in the marketplace about fraud? I think today you're seeing a, more attempts at it. Fortunately, the industry has more and more tools uh, available to them to protect in that case. But there's still stuff that gets through. You know, you can only run tools so close to closing you know you justin earlier in the call you mentioned about you know somebody going out and taking out some new debt the day before closing well that's actually fraud because you you're not you don't have the same financial position that you represented and you're signing a document at closing that says that you have not taken on additional debts and stuff and i don't think the consumer necessarily feels that's fraud i don't think their intent was to commit fraud in that case in some cases but it is fraud and whether the intent was there or not is up for debate, I guess, in some cases. Things like somebody leaving their job a day or two before closing or on the day of and being unemployed for 30 days. And then, you know, they don't see that as a big problem, but it is. It's a, that creates a buyback right there. So those kind of things we see, we, as you mentioned, the, you know, the bank statement manufacturing that's out there. That kind of stuff we've seen. We've seen the same thing with with people trying to do that with W-2s. As property availability has been very tight, as rates have risen, the market has tightened up a lot for the consumer, the, the, the borrower. And I believe that, that when we get into times like that, the propensity for people to try to commit fraud increases. And unfortunately, that's kind of the, the nature of what we've experienced in different cycles over the years. Exactly. I would add that fraud tends to rise in two environments. One, an up cycle, 
And they know they can take advantage of the, of the fact that many lenders are overwhelmed and have too many files to look at. And in a down cycle, when you're trying to push as many loans through to keep yourself at that same level as you were before, whether it's a LO committing fraud because he wants to make the same level of compensation, whatever the case may be. Rob, what are your thoughts on the cycles of fraud? Well, the issue, of course, is that fraudsters, bad players, whatever you want to call them, are always interested in going where the money is. And with mortgage banking and title and wiring money and so on and, and the loan process itself, you know, that's where the money is. And so we as an industry are always having to combat the people who whose energies are better off spent elsewhere. I, I sometimes marvel at some of the, the fraud schemes that go on out there and think, wouldn't it be great if that group of people actually turned their attention to doing something good rather than committing fraud? That said, I think that that Sometimes people tend to get desperate when volumes were really high. Fraudsters thought, okay, it'll be easier to slip something through the cracks. But now with volume down and every loan precious and the easy deals for the most part are done and the the loans I'm hearing now have, quote, more hair on them, tougher to do. And I think people will stretch in order to obtain financing to get their home. And especially with the lack of homes that are that are on the market and the lack of inventory, people are going to do what it takes. And there can be some desperation out there. So I have heard of an increase in fraud over the last year or two, and it needs to be dealt with. So companies are, are trying to be vigilant, but you know, there's a lot of smart people out there trying to do some bad things, unfortunately. No doubt about it. Fraud is never going away. Schemes are getting more brazen with technology. It's actually pretty scary. Thank you both, Rob Christman from The Christman Report and Mike Fontaine of Plaza Home Mortgage for joining this episode of In Conversation. I really appreciate you both taking the time. And Rob, go take care of that grandbaby, buddy. Thanks. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to Cytos AMC's In Conversation. To learn more about our company, visit us at CitusAMC.com. Subscribe to our newsletter there and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. 